pray for us this morning and we'll get into God's Word. Father, we're thankful that your Word says in Proverbs 15 that the, uh, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. That we might turn away from the snares of death. That we might shuv, that we might repent from the snares of death. And so, this morning we ask that your teaching through your Word would be wise, it would be compelling, it would be powerful, and that it would turn us away from things that would harm us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So last weekend, I let Mason, who's 11, Gage, who is almost 9, watch a PG-13 movie. Now, no one's as shocked as I am, right? The horror of that. I mean, pretty soon I'm going to be start, you know, going to the grocery store for a, a milk run and just leaving them at home by themselves. Just complete irresponsibility. And if you're wondering, I've also done that as well. It's 11. The movie, this PG-13 movie, was a reward for reading with me the first book in the 1,000-page Lord of the Rings. The first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And if you're unfamiliar with The Fellowship of the Ring, either in book or movie form, uh, it's about a group of unlikely friends who get together and they carry around with them a treasure, a ring. And they're hunted for it. They're hunted by every imaginable force for this ring. First by living-slash-dead kings called Ring Race, who want to kill you, take everything from you, but their main power seems to be emitting a sound that sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. All right? That's how they primarily hurt people, it seems like, at least in my surround sound. Um, then they get hunted by an evil wizard who does everything possible to put every obstacle in their way and sends his minions, to spy on them, to kidnap them, and to kill them. And finally, they encounter a lake monster. Do you remember this thing? Have you seen this movie? This lake monster, it looks like something like the the alien and predator had a baby. And it traps the fellowship in this underground mine. And in this mine, they find nothing at their feet but skeletons that have arrows shot through their skulls. So every turn, every moment, hunted, pursued, And about this point in the story, our protagonist, Frodo, turns to his wise old friend, Gandalf, and confesses, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf turns to him and says, so do all who live to see such times. That is not, though, for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. And he says, you know, there are other forces in this world, Frodo, besides the forces of evil. Bilbo, your uncle, was meant to find this treasure, this ring. And you were meant to find it. And that is an encouraging thought. With that thought, Frodo's mind is changed. He goes through many more perils. He's hunted down, almost killed multiple times. But he never wishes that none of this happened to him. He never wishes away the burden of this ring, this treasure upon him. You can't change your circumstances, but you can change your mind. At the voice of wisdom, especially divine wisdom, you can radically alter your perspective on the lot that's given to you, on the circumstances that are assigned to your life. We can change that. And this encouraging thought is embodied in our story this morning, Acts chapter 9. So open your Bibles, if you would. The Acts chapter 9. The Acts of the Apostles chapter 9 is on page 785, I believe. Acts chapter 9. So if you need a Bible, we have Bibles in these chair pockets, end of the rows. Please grab one. You'll want to use it. Another fellowship of unlikely friends known as the Apostles 
all of those who are with Jesus witness His resurrection, they carry with them a treasure. And they are hunted for it. The last time I preached, you might remember uh, Peter and John are walking along, going to the temple. And they heal a man. And having healed a man, they preach about the Jesus who has healed him. And they are imprisoned for it. They are threatened for it by the group of religious leaders. And that keeps happening. It's not a one-time occurrence. It happens over and over again. So in Acts chapter 5, we see a similar thing occur. And then in Acts chapter 6, we hear about Stephen as one of the men appointed to care for widows. Well, it turns out he also goes and he shares the gospel with other people as well, the good news about Jesus, and he is hunted for it. He gets, in fact, killed for it. Coming out of the mob that stones Stephen is a man named Saul of Tarsus. And, and Saul is so on board with Stephen getting stoned that he actually volunteers to take everyone's flowing long robes so that everyone who's murdering Stephen can throw better. So they can have a better shot at stoning Stephen. I'll take your robes so nothing gets in your way of throwing your best fastball to kill this man. At this point, the whole church scatters beyond the city of Jerusalem. It goes everywhere. Saul follows everyone. Follows multiple people. He follows to arrest them, to imprison them. And he goes to a place called Damascus. Now Damascus is this first oasis on a major trade route between Mesopotamia and Egypt, all right? Two massive places that love to trade spices and other things with each other. And and, and Damascus is kind of like that rest stop that says, come here, there's no other rest stop for the next 200 miles. And there isn't. This is the place you're going to go, you're going to stop, you're going to water your camels, water yourself, get water in your body, and stay for a couple nights, rest up until you go all the way to Egypt or to Mesopotamia. And and Saul knows that if the gospel gets there, if the gospel gets to this place, it might get everywhere. So what does he do? He goes up to Damascus with letters from the chief priest to imprison Christians, to make sure that this gospel, this blasphemy in Saul's mind doesn't get everywhere else in the world. Of course, he fails. And it would seem like a happy ending today if we saw in Acts chapter 9 a change to the circumstance of this fellowship that was so hunted. Can you imagine? Constantly under the threat of death. Constantly unsafe. Constantly escaping that moment where someone almost kills you for what you believe. And so we hope for this. Where's the happy ending, God? We don't get the happy ending we want. But what God does do is he speaks to circumstances. People listen. And we, see, and we witness three radical changes of mind in what the Bible calls repentance. So let's read together Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, as we talk about listening and repenting. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any people belonging to the way, that was what the church was called at this time, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. In other words, he was fasting. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, hey, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who, are call, all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings, before the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from his eyes fell, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. They said, Is not this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, all who called upon his name? Didn't he come here for that purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the right one to save them. Many days passed. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates. Uh, sorry, they were watching the gates by day and, and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. This is God's word. If you remember nothing else this morning, remember this about this message in a nutshell. Listen to God and change your mind. It's pretty simple, right? Listen to God and change your mind. Simple, and yet it's probably the two hard things to do as a person, right? We tend to listen either to no one or to everyone. But how, how hard do we find it is to, to listen to God, to hear from Him, to discern, God, is that you? And then to actually change our mind in such a way that our actions change and our life changes as a result. If you're like me, I tend to be very, very stubborn. 
But we'll learn this morning how to do this. We see in our passage three different persons or groups of persons who listen to God and are listening to Him change first their minds, and then God uses that change of mind to change the very course of their lives. First, let's talk about the choice to listen and listen to God. God speaks in a few different ways in our passage, and thus there's a few different kinds of ways of listening. First, there's a listening for direct communication. Right, we see this verse in verse 4, falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice. Verse 10, the Lord said to Ananias in a vision. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias in reply, God can speak directly. And I find this avenue of God speaking to be the most rare. I don't know if you've ever heard directly from God. My guess is most of us feel like we have not. But it shouldn't keep us from asking. A prayer I really try to pray every day, guys, comes from a little Old Testament story. It's from 1 Samuel 3, where a little boy named Samuel hears a voice call his name. And if you're like any kid and you hear a voice from the middle of nowhere, you're probably like, oh my gosh, stranger danger, right? What is happening? So he goes and asks his older friend and mentor and priest, Eli, and he says, I think someone's calling my name. Eli realizes it's probably God. And so he gives Samuel the advice. You know, when you think you hear a voice next time, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's a prayer, guys, I try to pray every day, every morning of my life. Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. I understand that I don't know the right direction for my life. I am your servant. You are my master. You know the way. I don't. I'm humbling myself. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I have found that God honors this prayer time and time again in different ways, and not always when I want, but he honors it. What's interesting, though, is when you sense that God is speaking to you directly, when he's, when he's speaking to me directly, I find he almost always issues to me a challenge. And what's interesting, if you go in the Bible and you look at all the times God speaks to people directly, it's almost always in the form of challenge. So, for example, when God speaks directly to the young Samuel, he talks to him about the last thing his mentor wants to hear. And then he has to actually share that with his mentor about his sons and some bad things that are going to happen to them. In our passage, God speaks directly to Saul and Ananias. What does he say? I will, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Right? Man, God, I'm so glad you talked to me. What's that? (laughs) You want me to suffer for the sake of your name? Thank you. Moses at the burning bush. Think about it. What an amazing thing. And we think, man, I would love to have the experience of a burning bush in my life where God shows up. Do you remember what God says to Moses? Go back from the place whence you came, that place where you murdered someone. Remember that? And speak to the most powerful nation in the world at this time and demand that they set free their labor labor force, their labor force of hundreds of years. So we see all these examples of the Bible. The prophets speak a word to which no one will listen, and God says, no one's going to listen to you, but speak it anyway. He tells one prophet to lie for 390 days on his side to make a point that no one's going to pay attention to. He tells another prophet to marry a woman who he knows ahead of time is going to cheat on him repeatedly. But go ahead, marry her. The father says to Jesus, Preach the good news for which you're going to be knowingly executed. That's what you've been called to do. 
And finally, Jesus to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you to go, get uncomfortable, preach, suffer for my name. This seems to be a pattern. And one of the reasons I think God tends to speak challenges when he speaks to us directly is because we can be more certain that it's not a product of our overactive imaginations or something that we just kind of want to hear in our own hearts, right? And we know that this is one of the most greatest and understandable obstacles in listening out to God. Is it you, God, or is that just me? Are, are you speaking, or am I just telling myself what I want to hear? Is that just what my heart wants? Have you ever had that problem when you think you might be hearing from God, but you can't be sure? And so I think God actually blesses us primarily by when he speaks directly to issue to us challenges, ideas, impressions, promptings that we wouldn't choose for ourselves otherwise. Like the time he asked me to buy bread and water and feed people on the streets in a third world country. And I sensed him prompting me to do that. I would not do that normally by myself in a third world country. I, I wouldn't normally give up a relationship for which I craved and I could find no other reason why I should abandon it other than God's prompting to do it. Praying for someone when it's uncomfortable and you get that little nudge like a friend told me this week to pray for someone. It's not something I naturally want to do and ask the person, hey, can I pray for you? I don't know what's going on in your life, but there's something I can pray for you about. Usually when God speaks directly, he's, he's nudging us with those, those challenges, those, those times to step out. That's what we see in the Bible. And that's what I found in my own life as well. We also should be listening to the person of Jesus. So listen to God directly, his direct communication. Listen to the person of Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, he had his own idea. He had a previous conception about Jesus of Nazareth. And it wasn't positive. As an educated Pharisee, Saul is zealous for God, and he's, he's zealous and excited about applying God's law to modern life. And I've said this before, that the Pharisees, that's what they love to do. They love to take God's old law and find ways to apply it to modern life. And so if the Pharisee church was around back then, it's probably a church we would like to go to, in many ways like Sunrise. We, we want to take God's old word and apply it to life. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do rigorously, but that's what they were trying to do. And that's what Saul wants to do. When Saul hears about Jesus, two things then consume his mind, almost certainly. One, a man who is killed on a tree is cursed according to God's law. All the commentators talk about this. Deuteronomy 21-23. That any person killed specifically on a tree is cursed. And so when... The Jewish people saw Jesus crucified on a wooden tree. It was just automatic for them to think, oh yeah, that man's cursed. But not only that, not only would that offend Saul, but people were saying the only and final way to get right with God was through this cursed man. Not only are people fleeing the faith, but they claim that they're no longer judged by obeying the law. No longer judged by obeying the law, but by trusting this cursed man. Imagine how offensive that would have been to him. The, the thing which I find most reprehensible, most cursed, most awful, you're saying that's a means to salvation. You're saying you don't have to obey the law to please God. You have to trust in a cursed man. Saul thought, people cannot believe this. They can't. And I'm going to do everything in my power to stop them from believing it. So not only then does Jesus confront Saul, 
but he speaks to Saul exactly what he needs to hear to change his mind. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, was Saul persecuting Jesus in the flesh? Did Jesus come back just for a temporary cameo so that Saul could put him in jail physically? No, of course not. He's persecuting the living, breathing embodiment of Jesus that he's left behind, the church. But that's Jesus' whole point. Jesus is revealing to Saul who he is, a God who identifies with humanity at our lowest. Jesus is revealing himself to Saul saying, that's me who you're persecuting. I still identify with humanity at its lowest point. That's who I am. Jesus is affirming to Saul, yes, I I was cursed by God with curses that should have fell on human beings for not living up to the law. And Saul later says this in Galatians 3.13, if you want to jot that down. Jesus takes what's most cursed about being a human being, and he identifies with it. Think about it. Circumstances of his birth, questioned. His hometown, a laughingstock. Misunderstood by everyone. Mocked by his enemies. Betrayed by his friends. Persecuted, beaten in the most public and humiliating fashion known to that day. All while the sentence of hell hung over him from his father. This is our God. And then he rises from the dead. And you would think after a victory, he'd want to go untouched by human suffering, right? Now I'm the king. That's what everyone knew about the divine. God is separate. He is king. He is awesome. And he is. And yet, what do we see? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In victory and power, Jesus chooses still to identify with the worst of humanity. Saul listens. He listens. After, after leading him to Damascus, we're told that for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. See, guys, Saul is fasting. Then we find out later, he is praying. Jesus tells us to Ananias. Now, Saul has prayed. He's fasted before. But you can imagine how different it is this time. For three days, confessing to Jesus' sins. I, I can't believe what I've done. Thank you so much for forgiveness. I can't believe all this time, all this that I read in the law and the prophets, it's all about you, Jesus. You can just imagine everything going through Saul's mind over these three days. What about you? Are you listening to the life of Jesus as he's revealed here in the Gospels and in the New Testament explained? Many feel that kind of exercise is impractical. Wait a minute, but I want to hear from God for my everyday life. Seems impractical. In fact, I was told such during our community group this week. Uh, our leader asked the question, how do you tend to hear from God? And I opened up to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and began reading in verse 1, where we're told, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by Jesus. And I paused, and a dear friend of mine said to me, well, I was hoping for something more practical <laughs> and that. And I get it, right? Just looking at the life of Jesus doesn't seem immediately practical. But, but that, that the life of Jesus, the Word made flesh, God's ultimate communication isn't practical. That, that's a you and me problem, isn't it? That's not God's problem. I, I wonder if it's because our lives look so little like Jesus that we need to so radically adjust. So we feel like, man, I look at Jesus' life and I don't know what He's saying to me. Maybe He's saying we need to really take a look at transforming our lives. 
and living a little differently, about praying for those who persecute us, about forgiving the 70th time, seventh time, right? About giving to others without expecting anything back, about loving the least like we would love Jesus if he was here in the flesh. Maybe that's the point, that when we're encountered by Jesus, he doesn't immediately seem practical because our lives have to adjust so much. But he can help us do this. Even while we're stuck on questions dealing with finances and where our children should be educated, we can adjust our lives to Jesus. Finally, we see we should be listening to other Christians. Read with me in verses 26 through 28. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. So they're in this position where you can understand all the disciples are fearful. They're afraid of subterfuge, right? They're afraid that here's a guy who's done anything to harm Christians. He's going to trick us, get into our little group, harm us, make us think he's our friend, and then boom, he's going to blindside us. But thankfully, someone stood up. That person was Barnabas. Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Paul or Saul was welcomed. Christians are still filled with, filled with all kinds of fear today, aren't we? Fear of missing out. What must I give up if I choose to obey Jesus? Well, what am I going to miss out on? Fears of others' judgments. What will people think of me? If I choose to make this decision for Jesus, a decision that's unpopular in my workplace, a decision that my kids might not understand, but I'm doing it anyway. There were two groups in Jerusalem, right? Barnabas and everyone else. To whom are you listening? Christians fighting those fears, like Barnabas, who say, no, here's what's true about God. Here's what can be trusted about God. Here's how much God loves you through Christ and has a plan for your life. Are you listening to Christians feeding those fears? Because both were there. Both were there in Jerusalem. But thankfully, Saul listened to Barnabas. And thankfully, all the other Christians did as well. Listening out for God is critical for a life of repentance. A life of changing my mind from my way to God's way. Uh, In his book, The Examined Life, this psychiatrist named Stephen Gross has published an overwhelming research on how people change or how they actually don't change. They tend not to. Gross actually examined, he and his team examined television footage of this 1985 fire that broke, up in this, uh, broke out in the stands of a football match in Bradford City, England. 56 people, maybe you know this story from England, were tragically killed. And, and they did this close, if you look closely, the, the, the footage... It shows that fans didn't react immediately to the fire. They continued to watch both the fire and the game. Fire and the game. Right? Failing to move towards the exits. And Gross concludes, he says, after 25 years as a psychoanalyst, I can say that this does not surprise me. We resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exit an old one. See, that's true about my life. Even if a situation is dangerous, I just want to keep on that path. And a perhaps more relevant question Luke poses in, in, in Acts 9 is not stepping into a new story, but whose story? Right? Having listened to the words and being invited into his story, 
we can repent. After listening to God's Word, inviting into His story of what's better, we can repent. We see repentance played out three times in Acts, so we don't actually hear the Word. I first remember hearing about this word repent when I saw someone hold up a sign that said repent or burn. Was it some demonstration? You ever see this before? Or as one of my friends said before, there's a turn or burn. Right? Like, stop what you're doing. We usually see it for people who are, you know, stop being gay. Turn or burn. Stop watching pornography. Turn or burn. Repent. Stop smoking. Repent. And these were the ways I'd always grown up hearing about this idea of repent. That's what it's all about. But the Greek word, the New Testament word for Greek is metanoeo, which means both meta, change condition, and noeo, which means mind. It means to change your mind and let your mind be changed. Change your mind and let your mind be changed. And there's a slight difference, by the way, in those two, isn't there? Like, for instance, I changed my mind this past week about eating sweets before bed because I know it's hard for my body to metabolize sugars and fat. So I changed my mind about that this past week. But my mind hasn't changed, which is why I've gained 15 pounds over this last year. All right? Clearly my mind hasn't been changed yet that I should stop eating sweets before bed. A few weeks ago I shared how I prayed for some non-Christian friends for physical healing. I changed my mind seeing that God wants to use me and God wants to help this person as I pray for them. But hopefully my mind will be changed about it as I do it a hundred more times. As I get into the habit of doing it again and doing it again and doing it again. And finally your mind starts to change that this is right. And this is how the New Testament seems to use this idea of repentance. There's an immediate change of mind. Decide now to turn. And a continual one in which our minds are changed and fruits produced and good works fall from it. the difference lies, guys, I think, in the habit. You decide, and you keep right on deciding until your mind is changed, it's transformed. You start to think differently. You start to act differently. You start to become a different person. How do I go from these moments of changing in my mind to a life of transformed mind? Acts chapter 9, Saul fleshes out how he does this. He changes his mind about Jesus, but he keeps right on reinforcing that change with actions. He speaks the truth, he risks for the truth, and he gets around other people who do likewise. So first we see that he speaks the truth, right? He gets out, it says in verse 20, immediately. That's interesting, isn't it? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. This is not the man who made havoc. And then again in verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving excuse me, that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, he speaks, he speaks, he goes right on speaking. And sometimes it's really important, guys, when you have a change of mind, to do so immediately, to go out and speak and talk about it. Why is that so important? Because speaking about what's true cements it in our mind and in our lives. This is why we see all these saints and the Psalms and the saints who say, all the time. I'm going to testify about, I'm going to speak about this in the sanctuary, O Lord, about your works that you have done for me. Why? Because by speaking them, the psalmist has these truths cemented in his mind and in his life by talking about them out loud. So it's important for us as a church to occasionally give opportunities for sharing testimonies. We have a whole Sunday dedicated to it once a year to get into community group and share what God has done in our lives because that cements the truth about who he is and what he's done into our minds. 
We see that Paul also risks for the truth, right? The guy almost gets killed, has to be lowered down in a basket through a wall. Because he's got to be killed. You may not risk your life, but do you ever take the smaller risk to your reputation, to your career, to your time, to your comfort and convenience for what's true about Jesus and the life which he calls us? Just those little risks even. That's a great place to start. Not only should we do that because we love and want to honor Jesus, but honestly, to transform our minds. So we'll begin to change, begin to think differently like Jesus thinks. And finally, we see that Saul gets around others who do the same. Notice the pattern. Saul goes from preaching and speaking to getting around the body of Christ, getting strengthened by them, finding encouragement through their stories, and he goes in and he goes out from among them, still preaching boldly. What's amazing, guys, is even when the church's most vicious persecutor changes, the persecution doesn't, does it? Jesus said, in this world, you will have many troubles. That hasn't changed. So don't busy yourself with trying to change your circumstances. Listen to God and change your mind. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea. Meanwhile, this is persecution's continuing. The battle is ongoing. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and, <clears throat> Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They had peace it was not circumstantial. They had fear, though it was not towards those who intended it. They had comfort, though it was not for their safety. I want to address one last question. About what specifically should we be changing our minds? I don't know what that is for you this morning. That's between you and God. But in our passage, all three parties, Saul, Ananias, the church, changed their minds about grace. They changed their minds about grace. Saul must change his thinking from the belief that he can, in fact, be good enough according to God's rules for a perfect God to accept him forever to the belief that God chose to identify with him, live the perfect life he could not, and offer the free gift of salvation in return. The church, along with Ananias, must believe that grace really changes people, even the worst of people. You know, at Gandalf's words, going back to the Lord of the Rings, Frodo changed his thinking about the monster who pursued him the most, a creature named Gollum. And he changes his mind about him forever and what's possible for him. I've had to do likewise in the way I treat people. I've spent most of my 20s thinking that I could, I could change people as a Christian, as a pastor. If people could just be shown the truth in a winsome way and just see how they're living their lives and how it's destructive, then they'll just want to change. If you just convince people of that, that they'll change and they'll transform. and They won't. God changed my mind. Only grace changes people. Grace is God's free love activated, or rather detonated in a person's life. And when that happens, people change. I've told the story before of an old Lutheran pastor who shared a story with me about wrecking his dad's Buick 8, which I guess is an amazing car when he was uh, just 16 years old. The young man was drunk, and all his friends were in the car. The first thing the father asked after the accident was, are you all right? And Rod said yes, and he admitted to his dad that he was drunk. So you can imagine that drive home, that long drive home. Later that night, he wept in his dad's study. At the end of the night, his father only said one thing to him, how about tomorrow we go get you a new car? The now minister confesses to those who are bewildered by his dad's 
response, by his dad's decision. He says, do you not think I didn't know what I'd done? Do you not think that it was the most painful moment in my life up to that point? Don't you understand that the law my whole life had been cutting me down to nothing? But all that changed from my dad's response. His father chose to believe grace could change his son, and it did for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so struck that you would speak to us. Jesus, that you came down to embody the words of God, to share a message